Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1262, with guest Matthew Renzi. Recorded Thursday, January 28th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks all over again. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. I'm in Connecticut. He's in Canada. And together we make Kinetic. Kinetic. Canada net. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing good will come of this. Kinetic Canada. (laughs) Kinetica. How about that? That's the way to say it. How you doing, my friend? I'm all right, buddy. How are you? Pretty good. I feel good. I feel... Back in the saddle. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's good to uh, to have a good recording day and sort of back in the regular... You know, the road shows are fun. I hope everybody gets that we have yes. a good time doing those, but working from the studio is good, too. I would really like to have my studio back. Yeah, yeah. It won't be long now, huh? No, nah, it'll it'll be a while yet. Oh. Uh, what are we, we're recording this in, in January, but we're publishing this in, uh, in February, mm-hmm. so... Uh, as of this particular moment, uh, the basement is totally gutted. I'm arguing with the insurance company about the settlement. I have, uh, designers and contractors waiting in the wings. So we're about to pull the trigger on it. But I think, you know, the, the project manager me looks at it and goes, spring. Yeah. So maybe March, maybe April, something like that. But we're redesigning the office. So I had the designer working on that. We're going to, you know, when I built that office in 2003, I had never been on .NET Rocks. Think about that. Yeah, you're going to put in some soundproofing and stuff. I mean, you sound yeah. great usually, but... We're, I think I'm going to do a couple of uh, real traps. Awesome. Some, a little bit of corner blocking and stuff and see if we can get the room perfect. Ethan Weiner's company, Real Traps. Yep, good stuff, the Real Traps. And I want to have the on-the-air sign, the, uh, nice. the stainless steel um, uh, retro one. That's yeah. going up. I love. I love mine. Yeah, they're great. I don't care if anybody ever sees it. I just like having it on. It makes me happy. Makes That's me exactly happy. right. And yeah. the only thing I can say is I put LED lighting behind it. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, man. Let's roll the funky music. I got something for you. Awesome. All right, buddy. What do you got? Have you had little dogs all your life? And by little, I mean, you know, not collie-sized. No, I've I've had bigger dog. I've trained bigger dogs as well. Remember, I I lived in a menagerie as a kid. So. Right. So, have you ever have a Shih Tzu? Uh, no, no. I like dog dogs. I don't uh, like uh, what the polite term would be companion. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I found uh, Shih Tzu dot com today, and this what? is not not like a dog Shih Tzu, like a spreadsheet Shih Tzu. S H E E T S U dot com. Get this, turns a Google spreadsheet into an API without any steps or plugins. You essentially copy the URL in and you've got an API, a REST API to to read and write into your Google spreadsheet. How cool is that? That's amazing. Now, of course, you have to authorize it through, you know, Google. You have to give it your sign in and tell it that you want it to make updates and blah, blah, blah. But once you do that, you're done. And I tried it, and it's great. It's easy. And it's free, apparently. Well, and, you know, we use the Google stuff all the time because it just works so darn well, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just easy. So, what's the site? Shitsu, S-H-E-E-T-S-U dot com. Polish guy built it. That's very cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I love it, love it, love it. Yeah. Nice find. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 1034, which we did back in September 2014 with Robert Bogue. We talked about requirements gathering, and that also led into a conversation about managing projects, agile versus waterfall, you know, that whole space, which I think is where we're going to end up anyway. So this is, comment, this is a couple of years old, and the name of the guy is 
the dude. The dude. And when we say the dude, we do not mean Ted Neward. Ah. So, another <laughs> dude. Okay. But uh, the dude says, thanks for the variety of esoteric and implementation, the soft skills, and the elevation of engineering. I enjoy that you get down in the weeds sometimes and then follow it up with a geek out. The eclectic nature of your podcast while maintaining your focus on primarily the .NET world is valuable. And I don't know if we focus so much on the .NET world as in what we think .NET developers need to That's know. That's right. Which is could be a larger world. Although, the, let's face it, the geek outs are a bit of indulgence. Yeah. And also, you know, it, it was for the .NET developers when .NET was hot. And now these guys are just developers. They use everything. Yeah, the di- the dividing line it almost doesn't exist anymore. It's a much right. more blurred thing. Uh, and the dude goes on to say, when the focus of the discussion turned to agile, pseudo agile, and not really agile at all, <laughs> my attention was piqued. Ah. Robert asked you questions about whether waterfall or agile methodology resulted in more code rework. And for anyone who's tried agile, the answers are both clear and easily understandable. Agile tends to produce more rework. Which I wouldn't disagree with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agile's rework, however, comes as a result of recent changes. And within the context of a near-term target, it tends to be reworked that's less costly in multiple ways. Yeah, this is iterate early and often so that you can get stuff more right. You know, the evil rework is the rework that shows up a year later. One thing I've seen in a corporate environment is that some management sees the value of, quote, agile-ish development as development that gets similar amounts of finished functionality into production status in far less time than waterfall which in my understanding overlooks the potentially costly but valuable process of engaging business partners sooner and more consistently to address smaller functionality the overall volume of the desired functionalities may take as long or longer to get to production versus using waterfall but i think the big gains of agile include a closer and faster engagement with partners which is powerful because it also means they're committed to the project i mean how many times have we sound software you built a year later nobody's going to use it right lessening time to customer for smaller piece of functionality in ux so that people can actually see that they have influence over the project an opportunity for increased iterations of refinement Increasing visibility, especially when coupled with things like Kanban, which is all about visibility. Lowering investment in design and implementation before the user vetting. And less costly edits in earlier development before code, workflows, and UX metaphors become foundational and uh, then resist change. Mm -hmm. I see Mm -hmm. Agile more as a customer engagement and work sizing model than a volume increasing tool. I thought that was a very important statement. This is about getting to the customer, figuring out what's really important and building the things they need the most first, then actually just, quote, going faster. Yeah. In a couple of the corporate environments that I know, with large volumes of legacy code bases, some budget owners and business partners mistake and misresent Agile as a way to set high delivery expectations while begrudging the requisite enge- engagement, which means they don't get it, and that ultimately requires more evaluation. I hope this isn't the majority of the experience for folks out there. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought really cool thinking around the, I really have to say the more social side of agile. There's more to agile than just everybody stands up at the meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dude, thank you so much <laughs> for your comment. A.net rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a.net rocks mug, write a comment on the website at.net rocks.com or via any of our social media. Cause we post every show to Google plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. You know, it's impolite to call our commenters by their last name. His first name is clearly the. Thanks, the. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we also tweet. You can follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us tweets because, you know, we stick them in our ears. Hey, uh, let's bring on Matthew Renzi. He's an independent software consultant with over 16 years of professional experience building large-scale data-driven desktop, server, and cloud-based applications. He has double degrees in computer science and philosophy. Oh, that's a dangerous combination. (laughs) With a minor in economics and a focus on artificial intelligence and machine learning from Iowa State University. He's an author for Pluralsight, an ASP insider, an international public speaker, and an open source software contributor. His interests include data analytics, data visualization, and machine learning. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. What, do you have any comments to add to uh, the comment Richard read? Well, I think if uh, I understood everything he said correctly, that uh, my discussion will probably fit along uh, with those ideas quite well. When I read it, I thought, this sounds like the conversation we're going to have. Yeah. 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 And uh, so we'll just dig into it. So you're, you're calling this the financial side of Agile. 
And do, do you mean that the sort of economics of Agile? Yes, more the economics uh, side of it. Uh, the presentation that I typically give uh, called Why Agile Works essentially focuses on the economic psychology and science behind uh, why Agile has been so successful, something that's typically missed out in a lot of the presentations I've seen on kind of the Agile 101. Okay. So where do we start? So we should probably start at the same place that I started, which was a, a TED Talk that I watched back in 2012 uh, by a British professor named Eddie Obang. Uh, in his TED Talk, he discussed uh, a revelation that he had uh, several years back. He essentially was talking about how the, about 20 years ago, something changed in society that created what he refers to as the old world versus the new world. In the old world, essentially human beings can learn faster than the world is changing. But in the new world, essentially society, technology, and markets are changing faster than human beings can learn. So the old world is essentially um, like marked by the inertial forces of bureaucracy, process, and tradition, whereas the new world is uh, characterized by the dynamic forces of communication, collaboration, and learning. So essentially, in this uh, world, if the world it has changed in the way that Professor Obang believes it has, we need to be able to adapt to the, the physics of this new world. And if markets are changing rapidly, we need faster time to market. And if requirements are changing rapidly, we need better response to change. So with this high degree of uncertainty in the new world, having continuous and rapid feedback loops, the things that Agile provides makes Agile very well suited to within the physics of this new world. Yeah, wow. So did you say this new world happened with the onslaught of digital technology? Or was it going yeah. on before then? Uh, he believes it has to do with the the internet coming into the mainstream. So somewhere about 20 years ago, though it looks based upon some of the data I've seen, it happened even a bit earlier than that. Yeah, it's almost like one big connected brain having a schizophrenic crack up, right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so obviously agile is a good answer to this, you know, being able to iterate often and, and react to changes in the market, but some, you know, not everybody implements the whole manifesto. There seems to be different flavors or different in implementations out there. Well, the Agile Manifesto essentially um, like outlined four value propositions and, and 12 principles that were found common amongst a series of software development methodologies that were popping up around the time. So uh, while Agile isn't like a software methodology in and of itself, it's essentially an umbrella term that captures the essence of these, these different um, patterns and practices that are all kind of found uh, under the same set of values and principles. And how does that, I mean, the, the real question here is, and this is what I think what the dude was talking about, is... Developers get this and get excited about it and want to iterate quickly, but organizations often resist it. They just, they, other than thinking, oh, I get to go faster. Isn't there, I think there's a, uh, uh, a Dilbert cartoon about this. It says, I want you to implement this with agile. And he says, agile doesn't mean just going faster with no additional resources. He says, well, find something that does mean that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think that's one of the main reasons why I created this presentation, because what I was finding when I got into the larger enterprises is, is that we'd have consultants come in and they were telling us like how to do like big A agile, you know, the, the processes and tools that they're trying to sell. Uh, right. But what they didn't seem to understand is like why these uh, ways of doing things were actually producing better results or they, they couldn't justify it with any kind of empirical evidence. So I started looking for answers in uh, the realm of like psychology, economics and science to try finding answers as to, well, why are these agile, you know, practices and principles actually producing uh, better results in the, the software industry. And, and what did you find? Yeah, what did you find? Well, a whole bunch of different things, actually. Um, for example, some of the things that I found uh, that I think I think people are starting to understand now is that the the landscape of project management changes tremendously with uh, agile processes. If you imagine you've got like four levers in front of you, like you're flying an airplane and you can you know adjust scope, resources, uh, schedule, the quality of the software that you're creating, essentially – you could just push all these four things forward and you'd be creating like working software as quick as possible with the lowest cost possible. But because we have these constraints that exist within the uh, the world of software development, things like, uh, you know, time resources and these other constraints, uh, we have to uh, we have these uh, restrictions upon our degrees of freedom with these constraints. So in the traditional project management world, they use what has been referred to as like the iron triangle of project management, where you fix scope and you estimate resources and schedule. Whereas in the agile world, we invert this triangle and we fix resources and schedule and we 
estimate scope. So right. the reason why we do this is because it solves a series of problems. So one of the problems is the mythical man month, this idea that we have diminishing marginal returns on each additional uh, person we add to a software development team. So if we fix the team sizes, which would be equivalent to fixing our scope, we're essentially uh, limiting the team so that they can't grow beyond this, uh, the point where the diminishing marginal returns get you know overwhelming. In addition, if we have slipping release dates, we do things like we fix the schedule so that prevents the uh, release dates from from moving because the release dates are always fixed. We d- may just have more features in one release or in the other, but they kind of average out over time. And uh, problems like scope creep, uh, essentially by uh, estimating the scope, we essentially eliminate the possibility of the scope creep from happening because it's an estimate to begin with. And mm-hmm. with technical debt, we allow the team to protect the quality of the software so that they can push back if they feel that the the um, the team is producing more features than is necessary relative to the amount of technical debt that they're accumulating. So it gives Agile a much more flexible framework for software project management. Because right. the normal scenario in most companies looking at the Iron Triangle is the scope and budget are fixed, so sacrifice quality. Yeah, yep. It's just, it's very challenging to get the average business person to trust you on the scope slash time problem. Yeah, and I think that's why being able to make economic arguments and having empirical evidence to back these things up makes it a lot easier to convince the business that, you know, these agile practices are working because of these underlying concepts that they may understand in in business metaphors uh, or from their, you know, um, their training in college. But since they're counterintuitive to the way the rules used to work, we have to explain to them that these rules work this way in the new world in order to essentially sell them on the ideas of agile. I mean, that starts with selling them on the idea that they're in a new world, which I, I don't know that's an easy sell. Uh, no, it's definitely a difficult sell, but um, Professor Eddie Obang does a really good job of convincing people of it. So I've shown that uh, TED Talk multiple times, and that's the, the, the aha moment for a lot of people when, they're, when that compelling argument essentially uh, shows them that they've been operating within the rules and uh, the structures of a world that no longer exists. So they're, they're acting rationally in response to this world, but it, it no longer exists. So right. they need to be able to mm-hmm. update their set of rules in order to work within the new, new world. I would also think that one of the reactions people have is they suddenly realize, well, that's why those guys were successful. They were working in the new rules. Yeah. And I think when they recognize that the people that are embracing the kind of physics of the new world are being successful because their agile practices are essentially um, like helping them navigate the uncertainty in the new world and the rapid changing technology. Uh, that's when a lot of people like have that aha moment and, and recognize that uh, they need to be updating their uh, worldview in order to embrace this kind of idea of a, a new world. Hey, .NET developers. You spent your career building shiny objects for other people, and now it's time one was built for you. Well, our friends over at Stackify are letting us in on the pre-release of Prefix, a totally free, slick, super profiling sidekick just for .NET developers. We're talking all ASP.NET requests, SQL queries, web service calls, logs, and exceptions real-time, all the time without ever affecting performance. Run it right on your second monitor. They're including Prefix at a web event on February 26th. Just go to bit.ly slash prefixrocks to register for the event and get early access to the application. Prepare to meet your new so, favorite um, sidekick. How, and, you know, it, it sounds like you're, you're pitching Agile as, a, as an idea, which has been widely accepted. But it still seems uh, that it's not, you know, it's accepted as an ideal. But uh, it seems that when you try to bring some of these practices to existing teams in the old world, there's a lot of resistance. So how, you know, one thing that we like to ask people who are, who, who talk about Agile and .NET Rocks is, you know, what are some of the ways that you can ease them into um, the new world without, you know, without the, you know, how do you turn up the water slowly on the frog without him jumping out is what I'm saying. Well, one of the things that I've noticed from uh, being in both small organizations and large organizations is that it really starts with education. And it, it typically has to begin with education at the top and have buy-in from the top and work its way down. Um, as, as software developers, and I think most software developers I interact with, especially the newer ones, um, they're very uh, agreeable to the ideas of Agile. I mean, there's a lot of people that that grew up in the, the kind of the traditional software development or waterfall world that take quite a bit more convincing because they've been doing things one way their entire lives. But what I've noticed is that if you're unable to convince the higher level management of the value of these things, uh, it's essentially not going to work or it's, it's going to be an uphill battle the entire time. So by trying to explain things in terms of economic psychology and science, I think things that 
the, the language that the business speaks, uh, it's a lot easier to convince them that these uh, seemingly odd things that the software developers are doing uh, are actually being done because, you know, it's actually producing value and there's empirical evidence to back this up. Now, I can think of an awful lot, lot of developers I've met where what you're asking them to do there is nothing they'd ever want to do. Talking to senior management about how to build software is a horrible thought for a lot of folks. Mm. Oh, yeah, understandable. A difficult conversation at minimum. So are we talking about a project leader or an architect? Like who's who draws the short straw on this one? Mm. Well, um, I'm essentially targeting with the, the presentation that I give uh, software developers in the hopes that they will have ammunition to um, to build a case for doing Agile if they have not switched over to Agile yet, uh, or if they're doing Agile, but they're constantly running into roadblocks, uh, or if they're experienced with Agile, but uh, a lot of these ideas they still don't understand because they're either not uh, you know communicated by the consultants well, they're not easily understood, you know, they're not in a lot of the Agile books, or they require a synthesis of information from multiple disciplines. So I think a lot of these things are uh, really valuable to the software developers in order to kind of wage the war for, you know, the good agile practices. Um, but I'm hoping at some point in time, I'll have a, an even more business oriented presentation that I can take to kind of like executives and stuff and explain things solely in their language rather than a lot of the stuff I talk about, like graph theory and quadratic, you know, functions and stuff like that in the presentation, mm -hmm. things of interest to software developers, but not necessarily management. So what are the, uh, the developers that have had success in this area? The, you obviously have a, a to-do list, you know, a, a method for going about this. What, what are the kinds of things they have to do besides just being more aware and more communicative? Um, you know, I don't know if I have a really good answer for that because it seems to be different in every environment. Uh, sometimes the education, you know, it has to happen first. Other times there's already buy-in. So it's about getting the right people in the right seats in order to get the bus moving forward. And other times it's about uh, fighting with uh, existing uh, politics and infrastructure in order to get these new, you know, seemingly odd principles uh, or odd practices acceptable in that environment. Yeah, that, that third one there, that seems to be a big sticking point. I mean, with, you know, the people I talk to anyway. Yeah, and I've had the uh, fortune of spending most of my software development career working for smaller or medium-sized organizations, and a lot of them that were working in uh, markets with a high degree of uncertainty. So these things made a lot more sense to them because in that context, Agile works extremely well. Uh, but, you know, for example, if we were just building an ATM machine or maybe a tractor, uh, a lot of these agile practices might not work as well in that specific context. So sure. I've been lucky enough to to work in environments where this really has been successful. Well, and also often we have organizations with hard deadlines, right? It's like, yeah, use whatever method you want. This is how much money you have. And here's how many things you're allowed to build. This is the things we need. And we have to have it by this day. Go. Yeah. But if you want to do the agile, feel free. Yeah, I think that's that big difference between like the big A agile and the little A agile. The little right. A agile is going to say, you know, you guys should use what works best for your team based upon your specific constraints, your specific goals, and your specific capabilities as a software development team. Whereas the big A agile, the stuff the consultants sell, is essentially saying, well, you need to do it by this, this, and this process, which is sounds a bit waterfall or traditional-ish, but it's the agile process that they're selling people on. Well, and I, and I think back to what uh, we had in the comment as well about getting really great engagement from the business people to actually make sure you're building the right things. Yeah. And that's one of the things that Agile is really good at is this transparency that it provides, not just to the team itself, but to uh, upper level management by using things like information radiators and uh, having you know frequent releases of software. It's, it's very on the surface with its visibility. That, that is a great term, information radiator. I immediately get a vision. Oh, yeah. What do you mean when you say information radiator? Yeah, well, so anything you're putting like on the wall or uh, that's visible to anyone that walks by, whether that's a software developer, you know, a manager or someone, you know, even a high level executive just kind of walking by the the uh, you know software development team's room, essentially that should communicate information to them about the state of the project. Are they running into problems? Like, are they creating software that's providing value? Essentially anything to indicate, you know, the uh, hopefully the level of success of the team. Yeah. Kanban board, maybe. Yep, something like that, yeah. or Scrum board. Yep. Uh, some people, yeah. we have like, uh, uh, in the office I'm currently working in, we have a series of uh, television monitors that have all of the things of interest to us as a development team, like our Trello boards and stuff like that, and uh, some charts and graphs too, uh, so that people that are more uh, management-oriented can take a look at those metrics and see, you know, is this doing what they're hoping it would do? And then our demos essentially fill in all the gaps. 
Well, and you get this problem with developers saying, you know, 90% of the time they're 90% done. Yeah. <laughs> now, is this different for a team that works in a, for a corporation, let's say, than it is for a consultant who goes into an existing corp and runs up against these same problems? I mean, you know, if they don't, if they don't, if they, if you come in guns a blazing and say, oh, you got to change all these things, they might just fire you and get somebody who will be the yes person, you know? Yeah, and I think I would have to positively reappraise that situation because if they were getting rid of someone right off the bat just for wanting to change things in an agile way, um, they're, they're probably not going to uh, buy in anyways, so it's probably best that you just parted ways early on. Yeah. Obviously, I take the strategy of uh, a more gradient approach where I try convincing every one of the ideas uh, using data and you know using evidence and metaphors and stuff before actually implementing any changes. So ideally trying to convince people before changing. And that's where the, the this is great. I mean, you can't you sort of can't argue with the economics of it, right? And that's that's really the best pitch to to management you can make is, hey, this is going to save you money. I mean, because they already think that their software is going to be perfect. So you can't convince them that it's going to make better software, but you can convince yep. them that it'll save money. Well, and I can show them things like uh, there's this idea called the Pareto principle, which most people refer to as the 80-20 rule, which essentially states that 80% of the effects are derived from 20% of the causes by any system that's modeled by power law functions. Yeah. And so if you look at software feature development in traditional software development, it actually exhibits the same 80-20 uh, rule or Pareto principle uh, properties where essentially – uh, 20% of the software that we're creating is producing about 80% of the value, and 80% of the software we produce only produces 20% of the value. And if you look at this as a chart, essentially half of all the software features that are built using traditional software development methodologies actually never get used. And that should be a pretty scary thing. I mean, essentially half of the project's uh, cost went to nothing. So by building things with a you know prioritized product backlog, mm. you can essentially reduce the cost of the project immediately just by eliminating those features that actually don't need to be created or will never be used. Yeah, and I think that's a real interesting part of it about uh, software development is often we're over planning pieces and under planning others. And the faster you iterate to find out reality, the better off you are. Yeah. Well, and, and ideally, the end goal of any software project is to maximize return on investment. And so by uh, you know, painting a compelling argument about how each feature has essentially a return on investment and the sum of all these feature ROIs essentially equates to roughly the ROI of the project as a whole. There's some emergent properties or emergent value that comes out of that, too. Mm -hmm. But if you then look at like a product backlog and the way you organize a product backlog by features, by their value or their return on investment, you're essentially showing management that, hey, we're going to create the highest uh, highest priority or highest value features first and capture value from the system, like from almost day one. Uh, whereas with traditional software development, we'd just be building the features in some order that doesn't actually take the ROI into consideration mm -hmm. and then release everything like towards the end. Uh, so agile um, practices using a prioritized product backlog are actually producing more value over the life of the software project. Yeah. Figuring out ROI is not a trivial thing. Though. No, it's like, not. It takes time. Especially for your average developer, I would say. The, explaining the concept or like calculating ROI? Yeah, but actually spending the time to get to know the business well enough to know what's high value, what's low value, right. and to equate a number to yeah. that, that's very time consuming. Well, and there's people that try actually um, putting dollar figures on it, but in most cases, what I've seen is that we're trying to use more relative, uh, like arbitrary pointing systems. So like, right. is the complexity going to be a one, two, or a three? And is the value going to be a one, two, or a three? And essentially right. use that in order to kind of tease out without all of the math that's necessary, uh, what is the you know approximation, a, a good enough approximation of return on investment, uh, so you can prioritize the features relative to one another. I've always had a certain VPs that every feature they wanted was always a three. <laughs> yeah, that's that's typically a problem. And there's there's certain things you can do to get around that by like having a, a bank account and you only have so much uh, ones, twos and threes available. So you have to choose more diligently. Absolutely. Uh, but I agree. other things that we do, um, like uh, using the idea of the wisdom of the crowds helps out as well, too. So uh, wisdom of the crowds is this idea in psychology that if you take the collective guesses of a group of people, oftentimes it's actually better than uh, even experts in many uh, categories of decision making. There's certain categories where it doesn't make sense. So for like uh, medical diagnostics, like a doctor is just always going to be better than a, a random group of people at trying to diagnose a specific disease. But when it comes to like quantity estimation, things like, you know, how valuable will this be to the users or how uh, much will this cost, you know, for the developer's time and effort? 
uh, getting those averages, essentially any decision category that's modeled by uh, like the central tendency theorem or like a, a normal distribution or Gaussian distribution, like this is where it works really well. So we can take advantage of that on agile teams and agile teams actually do do this stuff with things like planning poker. Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, I must be that happy time again. You got it. It's time to slap on the lid, turn the burner to high, and make frog soup. <laughs> Ooh. 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 Tastes like chicken. Uh, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Kevin Wheeler. Congratulations, Kevin. Yeah. Top clap for you, sir. Yeah. And Kevin just won DevExpress's D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But the only way you can win is to sign up. So do it now. And uh, we also like to ask our guests, Matthew, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Okay, can I buy two things or just one? No, you Many can spend... Many things as you want, up to five grand. Up to five grand, Okay, you want. So the the two things that I, I really think I need right now, or at least I believe that I need, are um, the developer's version of the Microsoft HoloLens, because I'm ah. currently working on uh, a in immersive data visualization tool that allows people to kind of uh, engage interactively with their data, and I'm building it for the Oculus Rift right now using Unity 3D's engine, but I'd really like the end game to be to build it for the HoloLens, and the second thing I really like is an emotive epoch which is an eeg it's a consumer level eeg oh, device that you can put it. on your head oh yeah yeah originally when i was uh, working on my um uh, my final final project for machine learning at iowa state university i was going to build a machine learning algorithm that would do something uh, like the emotive epoch would but now i just saw uh, jennifer marsman do a presentation with it where she was doing lie detection and it just got me excited about it again so if i had free time i would just write all sorts of little machine learning algorithms to decide something based <laughs> upon the data that's so very full cool. bore epochs, 500 bucks. The uh, HoloLens dev kits, 3000. Uh, and you could throw in a, uh, an Oculus Rift for $600. You're still not out of money. You got 900 bucks. I was going to say, go. I already got the Oculus Rift. Maybe I'd buy an, uh, a better microphone then for recording uh, podcasts <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. But yeah, all these new UI concepts i think are uh, are really interesting or just you know agreed how you collect and data it, from your user and, and how you present data to your user and i heard a quote recently I, i'm not going to get it right but essentially that the the next generation of a user interface or um in, in, like computing is essentially going to be invisible to the user like we're not even going to see the computer anymore the devices we're interacting with it will just be embedded in our environment i believe that yeah I, I think, yeah, computing's getting super cheap, it's super small, so just put it everywhere and uh, be able to pull your identity around with you quickly so that you, you just follows you around. You, you don't even have to yeah. think about it. It just mm -hmm. kind of happens. You know what I, I, I watched on the airplane coming home from Scotland there, buddy? What's that? Uh, was um, Minority Report. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't watch it be to, for Tom Cruise's thing or even the whole plot twist and so forth. I watched it for the tech. Yeah, the UIs. Yeah. Very, and uh, just how close we are, right? The, and the big, big emphasis, if you go back and look at it again, is eye scanning. All over the place, they were identifying people from their eye scan. There was a little flash kind of thing that, oh, I know who you are. Then they were doing directed audio and directly video to present information to you. Mm -hmm. um, all pretty compelling actually like it's, it's absolutely uh, uh feasible 
Yeah, it's really not that far away. Um, I've got access to a lot of like uh, the prototypes that are being done in the machine learning industry, like a lot of stuff that the the average person doesn't know about yet. And the stuff that they're doing in retail spaces is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's going to be like tremendous as far as like uh, marketing and advertising potential, but it's also getting a little bit creepy as well, too. So I think at some point in time, we're really going to have to sit down and like reassess the ethics of like privacy. I mean, I know you're in a public space, but some of the things that they can determine just by your image and your body heat and stuff walking through a store actually seems almost kind of invasive we are we are we did this show not too long ago with tim huckabee and just the ability of the connect to determine your age your gender your overall mood it's pretty creepy and he's excited about it and we're like dude that's a little creepy apparently (laughs) people pay a lot of money for that yeah, I think I'm I'm dancing on both sides of that fence. I'm super excited about it, but at the same time, I also recognize how uh, if it were used nefariously, it would not be a, a very pretty outcome. No, it's uh, it's not a not a trivial thing. So yeah, I'm I'm with you, and, and we're going to keep pressing against that over and over and over again. Yes, the, the creepy. And I think that's all all part of evolving as a, a people and stuff. Is that our you know our ethics are usually a little bit behind our technology and sometimes too far behind, but yeah. eventually, hopefully, things will catch up. Well, and I really like this whole idea of the the uncanny valley. It's not a small thing that it's creepy, you know? It is an instant revilement, an instant disgust. It is exactly the opposite of what the user wants to have happen with this yeah. with your product. So we're strongly incented to solve it. You can't ignore this. The product will fail horribly if you get this wrong. Well, and it's interesting, you have to wonder, you know, why did the Uncanny Valley, uh, like, evolve as a human response to things? There must be a really good reason for it over, you know, uh, eons of uh, evolution. So, I'd have to imagine that um, the reason why we have that response, uh, the the solution to it's not going to be an easy fix. Yeah, it's really weird to think about why that even exists in our system. Like, the, why, why we have this sensitivity to anything trying to impersonate a human. Yeah. Um, you know what what was that what kind of weird predator was after us that we that <laughs> that that evolved trait stuck around other yeah, than yeah it's, it's a cheap, really right? interesting like, question I, I wish i knew the answer definitely an interesting piece of psychology in this equation so i and i feel like we sort of hit on the economic sides of agile and, and in some respects the psychology i mean more than anything and i think this goes all the way back to right at the top of the show when you engage business people deeply in the creation of the app, they get committed. They get committed to try it. They get committed to see the effect they've had on it. Uh, you know, th- that w- things work the way they do because they were part of that process. What are there other science elements that we need to focus on? Um, well, as far as the science goes, one of the concepts that I think is really important, which is, uh, kind of a, a blending of, uh, Oh, I don't even know where to refer to it as. It's this idea of complex adaptive systems. And it, it really does a great job of explaining why agile teams are able to respond to uh, new information or information so rapidly. So I know it's a big and complex sounding word, uh, but I'll break it down and make it simple. So we've got a system, which is essentially a collection of interacting things. And it's complex, but in the mathematical sense, meaning it's a dynamic network of interactions. And it's adaptive, which means it changes in response to its environment in order to con- increase its survivability. So okay. these work because of an inversion of control of the uh, kind of the organizing structure of the of the the system. So rather than being a top down command and control structure like our typical bureaucracies are, it's a bottom up self organizing uh, what they call an ad hocracy. And so uh, what this is doing is it's it's allowing information to come into the system. Uh, I think maybe a metaphor would work best here. So you imagine a school of fish, and we've got these school of fish which are a complex adaptive system. They're swimming uh, next to one another in a, a school formation, and so they're communicating information to one another in terms of their position, location, velocity. Velocity. And by using these simple local rules, they can essentially produce this uh, large, what appears to be a large mass. So predators, you know, predatory fish are swimming around and they see an even bigger, what looks like a fish swimming towards them. And so then they're deterred from attacking these individual fish, or at least it increases their survivability relative to being a fish swimming alone. And so agile teams essentially exhibit the same properties of these complex adaptive systems, where they're able to respond to information very quickly because they're self-organizing and they have the uh, the emergent properties that uh, come out of it, just like the school of fish has an emergent property of being a looking like a large mass when it's swimming in formation. Right. So is this the, you know, we're back to, the guy who draws the short straw talk to senior management saying, 
There's no such thing as versions in software anymore. We're going to be constantly adapting the software to the changes in business. So, you know, you, you want us engaged. You want this as an, as a continuous process so that we can make sure the school of fish turns when it needs to turn. Uh, yeah, I think, I think by explaining it in terms of like feedback. So agile teams are really good at utilizing feedback in order to, uh, respond and, and uh, adapt to changing requirements and changing market, uh, changing technology, essentially even changing uh, user preferences. All of these things that occur from the time we decided to start a project until the end of the project. And so like the traditional software development uh, paradigm essentially is operating under the assumption that all of these things are stable for the life of the project. But the right. reality nowadays yeah. is that when you they start building are. the next Uber, Everything is changing around you. It's it's like trying to build an airplane while you're flying it, and so yep. you have to have really fast feedback loops in order to um, in order to adapt and stay on the right course because the course is actually changing as you're developing software. And it, you know, of course, that leads us to the problem of managing expectations, which is always hard. I mean, estimating is an art in and of itself, but your estimate may be more or less right. But you know, when when thing when requirements change and technology hurdles come, those you know, you you have to constantly be pushing out the the date or pulling it in or whatever, and that you know managing that is it can be hard, especially hard well, on the management. Interestingly, um, the evidence that I've seen from like Barry Bohem's uh, empirical research on software cost estimation shows, and I, you guys have probably heard of the cone of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that uh, estimate variability decreases over time as we learn. In fact, when we typically start either a new project or feature, our estimate variability is typically off by a factor of four to begin with. And then over time, this actually uh, uh, decreases like it uh, asymptotically approaches zero right. as we're learning more right. about the thing we're building. And so, interestingly, uh, when you're learning, feedback is actually, uh, according to several studies I've seen um, in terms of effect size, feedback is actually the strongest factor in terms of success in learning. So, like, students that receive really good, high-quality, rapid feedback actually learn subject matters better than students that don't. And so, Agile then has these continuous feedback loops built in at multiple levels and timescales, which allows us to uh, adapt uh, at all of these different, uh, well, like, timeframes and stuff. So, like, TDD down to the order of seconds, all the way up to um, our release planning and demos and stuff that are giving us feedback in the order of like days and months right and so this is actually uh, highly advantageous and like some of the new agile kind of uh, uh, practices that are coming out of like the lean startup movement things like smart failure where we're running a lot of small experiments to just test our hypotheses and then we have a bunch of small failures and we have a bunch of small successes but each of these failures and successes produces new valuable information that helps us guide the direction so that we can pivot when we find out that our assumptions are incorrect so by having a bunch of these small uh, failures and small successes we hopefully avoid epic failure these like large failures where we spent a whole year trying to figure out you know try to build something just to find out we didn't even need it or that the market changed while we were building it in the first place yeah and you have to do that though and you have to convince your developers to do it it's just one more thing that has to be taken into consideration when you're when you're when you go up against the agile butt you know or the half agile or the quarter agile. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the way that one can then sell this idea of, you know, feedback being so valuable to agile teams uh, to business is that essentially this feedback is helping reduce our risk. And that's yeah, a term right. that they're going to understand. And yes. if you can explain to them how this feedback actually reduces risks, that's essentially the uh, the selling point for the, the business. You know, it, it is all about economics, isn't it? I mean, you, you yes. put in that language and the management is is in. Yeah. And that's why I think concepts like uh, the technical debt metaphor, I think, resonate so well with management. Oh, sure. It's one of these terms sure. that we created in order to communicate better uh, as agile individuals with the business. Mm. And so by framing these things in a language with metaphors that they understand, uh, we have a much better ability to you know, uh, communicate with them and help convince them that these ideas are actually sound. Yeah. I mean, that word debt is so powerful in, to a business person, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, at the same time, we talk about instrumentation. Pretty soon, this becomes a DevOps conversation, right? Inter- in- instrumenting apps in production is starting to create metrics of value from the app directly. Yeah, and that's a, a very interesting like area of research where we're actually building in all of the telemetry into the applications to actually validate our hypotheses like while we're developing the software. Well, sure. we're thinking about creating this new feature on this page. Well, how many times have people actually clicked on the page? Well, they're not really clicking on it. Well, so should we really add additional features to this page if it's barely even being used? Who knows? Maybe that will actually increase the number of people using the page. Or if that page is just neglected because it's not valuable, you know then not to um, add more features to it. 
Well, and as a performance tuning guy, it was the, the ROIs were pretty clear there and instrumentation was important. It's like when the site goes this fast, we make this much money. When it goes this much faster, we make this much more. Yeah. And that's, that's really the power of, um, you know, like applying the ideas of data science. And, you know, there's this idea now called, uh, uh, running on analytics, where essentially you're making decisions as a business based upon a data science kind of, uh, a framework where we're running experiments, we're testing things out. We don't make decisions unless we have data that can actually back up the decision. Cause otherwise right. it's just an assumption. I mean, that's yep. something to really think about. Like anytime someone comes to you with a software requirement, what they're actually saying, you know, it, it sounds like it's this uh, ironclad, you know, requirement, but it's really just an assumption of value. What they're really saying is that I assume that a user will drive value if we implement this feature. But until you've actually validated that hypothesis, I mean, it's nothing more than an assumption. Yeah, and it's interesting to push back. You know, it's funny. We take a lot of flack as developers for estimates on creating things. But what if you push that estimate back to the um, analysts and say, tell me how much this feature is going to make? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've created this requirement. <laughs> tell me what the income value of that. Because I can instrument that. Mm -hmm. I will actually get you those numbers back. How close is your estimate? Yeah. And hopefully uh, having a conversation like that, which I have actually had in the past, will lead people to recognize that just simple approximations like one, twos and threes in, in your, your uh, relative pointing systems are good enough because any any more fine grain than that, the cost is typically too high to justify. Now, in certain yeah. cases, like if you're building a spatial or something, you know, a really complex and expensive, you need to have really good estimates and spend the time to do, you know, the due diligence to get good numbers. But um, when you're building, you know, the software that most of us are building right now, uh, usually th that kind of additional cost just is not justified. You're just not that yeah. close to the edge one way or the other. Yeah. Once again, it's all coming back to economics. Sure. But it is useful to take those num you know what would be useful is breaking those features down into their dollar returns and seeing if they come out in the same order as was proposed for priority. Yeah. That would be very interesting. And especially getting that kind of uh after the fact uh, validation that your assumptions, you know, were were the the case, you know, uh, even after the fact. Sure. I, I also think this is this gets speaks to a, a challenging cultural element of allowing us to fail. And being able to scrutinize those failures, take learnings from them and go again. Because a lot of organizations are so failure fearful that they'd rather stare at their navel for weeks about things rather than just get out built and see what happens. It's a culture of fear, too. And it comes from the top down, doesn't it? Most of the time, a, a, a fear of failure. Because management doesn't want to hear that you, you missed it. You know, they'll hold your feet to the fire. But uh, in fact, yeah. like uh, this is why the small failures and small successes idea is a great one. Yeah, and that's that's one of the big changes that I think we're seeing happening with the kind of newer breed of agile, the, especially the stuff that's coming out of the lean startup movement. Mm -hmm. And uh, that professor Eddie Obang talks about this extensively as well too. This idea that you know if you're if your uh, coworker Joe has this idea and you know he's got a hypothesis and he runs a little experiment to test it and he finds out that his hypothesis was incorrect. Like in the old world, the world before midnight, essentially you would discipline this person because well you spent time doing something that that was not you know the case. Mm -hmm. But in the new world the world after midnight like instead you buy that guy a pizza because you just learned something that you didn't know before like you've, right. you've actually increased the value of your organization if you look at information and knowledge as an asset in the business and so that takes that fundamental change where the business now has to start looking at information as a strategic asset to the company like what do we know that our competition doesn't because we ran these series of experiments <clears throat> that showed us uh, something that that they don't know because they haven't run these experiments so instead of docking their pay you give diabetes <laughs> yeah uh, this is really cool you know i'm looking over your show notes and um i, I don't i hope you don't mind we can just geek out for a second you created oh, yeah, this absolutely. power over ethernet lighting system you're talking to the right guys here how did how did that work <laughs> So I'm a, I consult for a company called Igor. They're an intelligent power over Ethernet uh, company. And what they're doing is they're building a system that has fine grain sensing and control of all of the lights and sensors in a building so that you can optimize the buildings for energy efficiency. Obviously, LED and DC powered, right? Uh, yes. So all of the lights are LED, which um, now that lights, you know, we can have LED lights in buildings, their uh, power usage is low enough that we can power them through 
the Cat5 cable. So the exact same cable you're running through your buildings to connect your computers and your switches and servers, uh, you're now using those to drive the lights as well. But because you're now, uh, it's on your, your network, your data network, uh, you can use that data coming from the lights and sensors to optimize the buildings for energy efficiency in ways that have never been possible before, right. or at least cost effective in the past. And it sounds a lot like LumenCash, which is a company Richard and I have talked about on the Geek Outs before. You heard of them? Uh, no, I'm actually not familiar with oh, them. Oh yeah, look them up. I know yeah. they do this. They have a. They basically convert AC to DC in one step, and then everything from there is distributed with Cat5 all to LED lights. Exactly what you're talking about. Now they they do it for you know uh, retail and home systems where you're talking about commercial buildings, but I'm sure it's the same thing. Yeah, it's probably relatively close. I know the the way we get the power into the lights is from uh, power over Ethernet-based switches. So essentially the switches that are sold by the switching manufacturers uh, produce enough power to drive all the lights. So you're plugging into the the normal AC uh, at the switch level, and then um, it's driving the power through the, the uh, Cat5 cable beyond that. And you also happen to have data signaling along the way. Yes, and the, the data is in that same signal, yes. Is this something that uh, is going to be for sale to... Or, or is it just for their own commercial buildings? Um, well, we're currently developing it in order to sell through resellers. And I think there's also a strategy to do direct sales as well, too. I, I don't uh, I stay out of a lot yeah, of the, yeah. the business side yeah, of it. It's just an interesting um, since... thing. It's something that I'd like to purchase, actually. Oh, yeah. If you'd like, uh, I'd be more than happy to chat with you uh, offline about it as well. So Sounds good. Uh, we're just about the end of the show. Did we miss anything? Um, I'm not sure. There's I mean, like, if you want to continue geeking out, there's all sorts of stuff that I find interesting. <laughs> I'm sure there is. We're just about out of time though. Uh, let's talk about your R course. Oh yeah. So, uh, recently I created a, a course for Pluralsight called exploratory data analysis with R. And I'm currently, uh, even today working on uh, a second course called data visualization with R. So these courses, essentially the, the exploratory data analysis kind of walks you through the basics of learning how to use your data and it's targeted towards software developers in general, but it, it's generalized to um, it professionals and data analysts as well. Mm -hmm. So it shows you how to use the data that's around you all day long in order to make informed business decisions with that data and takes you through um, like numerical analysis or statistical analysis in addition to uh, data visualization as well too. The second course I'm working on is focusing specifically on data visualization and actually goes really deep into um, doing data visualizations with R using the base plotting system, uh, Lattice and ggplot2, in addition to a bunch of other, um, other extension packages as well that do more complex visualizations like hierarchical visualizations, uh, spatial visualizations and network visualizations wow. as well. That sounds very cool. We've done some shows on R recently, and uh, you know that's it's not uh, not for the faint of heart, shall we say? Oh yeah, actually, I I just listened to uh, Baja's show this morning. Uh, I, I think she went by Barbara on the show, though. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Matthew, thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Excellent. It was a pleasure. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a